Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. If you haven't yet filled out the Back from the Abyss listeners poll, please do so. We've been getting a lot of helpful feedback, some interesting thoughts, some really kind and lovely compliments. Thank you so much. And one of the things that's come up a bunch in the early returns is that a lot of you are wanting some more mini episodes with me where I talk about clinical ideas or cases or just insights. So I thought I would do this episode. It's going to be called Lessons and Insights in Clinical Pearls from 20 Years of Psychiatry. I can't believe I've been doing psychiatry for 20 years. Um, So here we go. In residency, we learned that there are basically two primary mood disorders. Bipolar mood disorders and major depressive disorder or unipolar depression. And the basic difference between those is that bipolar disorder has major depressive episodes plus hypomania or mania, whereas unipolar depression or major depressive disorder has just major depressive episodes. But I think there's a fundamental flaw in even this uh, construction, this nosology, because if you look in the DSM, what they define as a major depressive episode, they say it can be characterized by hypersomnia, oversleeping, or insomnia, lack of sleep, which makes no sense whatsoever. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, because if you think about it, hypersomnia is a shutdown of the nervous system. It's a, it's a numbing, it's a parasympathetic thing, it's a... Um, it's a hibernating kind of thing, whereas ins- insomnia is activation, overactivation, uh, sympathetic nervous system, trauma. So it's, it seems that the whole mood, uh, primary mood structure of the DSM is built on this faulty assertion, and more and more psychiatrists are starting to argue this. But I think it can be really helpful for us to think about depression in a different way. And that is that, and I talked about this in the depression episode from season one, in my mini episode, but this idea that you really probably can break down depression into two much more helpful buckets. You've got the hypersomnia bucket, and you've got the insomnia bucket. And in general, and there are exceptions to this, but the hypersomnia bucket, the oversleeping bucket, the major depressive episode with oversleeping, that's a bipolar spectrum illness. It's somewhere in what we would call the bipolar tent. Whereas the major depressive episode with insomnia, that's being fueled. Think it's insomnia that people can't sleep. That's being fueled by anxiety or trauma or neuroticism or relationship problems or existential issues, cultural factors. But it's a very different thing. And so I think a new nosology that we're moving towards in psychiatry is that There's bipolar spectrum depression with hypersomnia, and then there's everything else, which, again, major depressive disorder, not a helpful uh, description, but that's all we've got for right now. So how do we then maybe think about diagnosis in a more helpful way? Well, I think the first thing to do is to figure out, do you have a bipolar spectrum illness that you're looking at in yourself or in your office? And no hypersomnia, it's very unlikely to be bipolar spectrum. But what are some of the other features? Well, bipolar spectrum mood disorders typically start early 
in adolescence, like right after menses or me, you know, usually by age 14 or 15. And it typically starts with pretty severe depression. We also know that bipolar spectrum depression, bipolar, sorry, <laughs> bipolar illness has very typically has seasonal worsening, uh, meaning it gets worse in the fall and winter. There's a much higher number of lifetime episodes. And for sure, postpartum worsening is a really big deal. If you have a woman, say, with a history of anxiety, depression, and she has severe postpartum mood disorder, anxiety, OCD, her likelihood of being the bipolar spectrum is huge. And then bipolar illness is very genetic. And interestingly, the more severe bipolar illnesses seem to skip generations. So a lot of people are sitting in my office with a fairly severe bipolar illness. It's usually a grandparent who's really stricken, whereas the parents tend to have more of a depressive picture. So if you're ruling out that someone doesn't have a bipolar spectrum illness, meaning they don't have the hypersomnia or the early adolescent onset or the frequent episodes, the postpartum worsening, then they have this other big bucket of depression that we don't really have, I would argue, a good name for, but that's where we start looking for trauma and neuroticism as part of a personality template or anxiety or other sociocultural factors or work or love stressors. And it really matters if, if you're in the bipolar bucket or not. One big reason is because if you're in the bipolar spectrum bucket, if you will, you are probably going to be a really good responder to lamotrigine, lamictal, and ketamine. If you are not in the bipolar spectrum, you could respond to ketamine, but you're much less likely to, and you're probably not going to respond to lamictal. You're going to need to take sort of combinations of meds, perhaps that address anxiety and depression, and probably anxiety primarily, because again, as I and many others are arguing, this whole sort of false uh, diagnosis of unipolar major depressive disorder is a large wastebasket of things that aren't necessarily related, but they are all tied together with this idea of insomnia fueled by an overactive nervous system. When patients sit in our office and we're starting to assess for trauma, there's a lot of different ways we can do that. We could ask, have you been emotionally abused, physically abused? Do you think you were neglected? You could go through the DSM criteria. And I, I do always ask about specific kinds of abuse and neglect, but in my mind, the key question, if you are kind of the pathognomonic question for bona fide PTSD is, are you haunted by your trauma? And I use that word haunt very purposefully. Because I think, as, I think of trauma as a psychospiritual and, and somatic wound, if you will. And the thing about haunting, the word haunt suggests that it's always lurking, can show up any time, scary, life-wrecking, ethereal, yet profoundly real, hard to explain to others. And it's interesting because when you ask patients about whatever trauma, oh, I was sexually assaulted at age 10, or my mom abandoned me. When you ask them, though, does this haunt you today? People get that. It's, it's like saving the whole DSM PTSD criteria with one question, because again, haunting suggests that no matter what you're asking about in their past, is it here lurking now? And 
I find that that's a really good way to sort of sort people into groups of a traumatized but not actively being you know, seriously affected by that versus people who have bona fide active PTSD. Back in 2011, I went to an amazing seminar at the Colorado Psychiatric Society in Aspen. And the seminar I did was a weekend seminar called The Difficult Patient. And basically, what we each did, we brought a couple cases um, to present and discuss of, of patients that we're really struggling with. And not surprisingly, a lot of people had uh, patients with kind of avoidant traits, narcissistic and borderline personality tendencies, complex PTSD, all sorts of disordered attachment. And the man who taught this course, Jonathan Shedler, and some of you have heard of him, he's a very famous psychologist. He said one of the most helpful things I've ever learned in all my training. He, he said, as soon in the treatment as you realize that someone has the potential to have a big relationship fallout with you, and that could be because they said, oh, I've been married a bunch of times, or people leave me, or I've had difficult relationships with therapists, anything that's suggesting that this relationship might get difficult. He urges us to say something like, uh, hey, it sounds like you've had some difficulty in past relationships or with past therapists. If we could make an agreement right now that if I say or do something or don't say or do, don't do something that's hurtful, will you promise to talk about it with me? Will you promise not to disappear? And, uh, and I, I've been doing this now in the last 10 years. People always say, oh, no, no, that, that won't happen. You won't hurt me. You won't, you won't do anything or say anything hurtful. But, but it's really important that you, you ask for the commitment. And then ongoing through the therapy, maybe every couple sessions, you remind them, hey, remember our little agreement that if I say or do something hurtful or don't say or don't do something that's hurtful. Will you promise to talk about that with me? And that is the magic sauce for dealing with people with really disordered attachments. And you've heard that unfold in a couple of the episodes in my podcast, like the Delta Flight Attendant. Because what you're doing here is you are you're inviting uh, the likelihood and also the possibility, that the likelihood of... of acting out or, or the patient feeling abandoned or hurt, but you're also opening up the possibility for empathic repair, which is not happening in the, in the rest of their life for they would not be sitting there with you. And this is also a really good time. Dr. Shedler talked about this. This is a really good time to introduce the idea of projective identification, if not in the first session, but in one of the first few. And if you may remember, projective identification is the idea that traumatized patients will unconsciously make others traumatize them. So in the therapy relationship, someone who's been traumatized will unconsciously, and that's a really key point, unconsciously turn the therapist into the abandoner, the abuser, the sadist. And um, it's a really powerful thing to, to experience as a therapist. And uh, I find myself usually catching it, although sometimes I have to say a few times, Maybe in the last three months, I've had two or three of my patients who are also big podcast listeners say, Dr. Heacock, I think your countertransference sadism is acting out. <laughs> um, 
So I can't emphasize how enough how helpful this is. It's to, and it sounds strange to basically say to the patient or client right up front, hey, we're going to have really rough times. You're going to be so upset with me. You're going to want to run. Please promise that you don't. But this has been one of the most just powerful magic weapons that I have to, to sort of uh, cut through that toxicity of, of damaged attachments and, and particularly borderline personality structure. In medical school, we learn what's called the SOAP note format, S-O-A-P, Subjective Objective Assessment Plan. And you know, we get a lot of coaching and emphasis on A and P, meaning have a really good assessment, think about what people, what's going on with them and have a plan. So I would argue it's really in the structure of allopathic medicine and in our training and even our clinical notes it's built in that we think about treatment goals. Yet, so often the patient's goals have nothing to do with what we think should happen. You know, one of the most common goals I hear in an in evaluation is, quote, I want to get off my meds, end of quote. And I'll say, oh, you know, why? Or are, they, are you having problems with them? And a lot of times people say, no, I just want to get off my meds. That's the goal. And I might poke a little bit and say, well, is maybe another goal that you would feel and function well, or you would be at a kind of optimal level of mental and physical health. And sometimes people will buy into that, but a lot of times they'll say, nope, I just want to get off my meds. And I think this brings up the, the reality that, you know, we have to let the patient lead in goal setting, but we also have to sort of remain meta, kind of outside and above, and watch for unreasonable, impossible goals. You know, if we see things in the patient's you know, personality or interpersonal structure or their or their lives like out of control substance abuse or uh, self-destructive things like no-shows or late cancels or refusing to pay we have to bring those up front and we we may have to help patients modify their goals early on and a lot of patients don't like that because they're there often with their clear idea of what needs to happen so there's this kind of tricky dance that we do where we're we're really trying to empathically validate what the patient's goals are, but we're also being meta and we're uh, thoughtfully, but sometimes strongly urging people to put some other goals above maybe their initial ones. Not everyone is ready for therapy. In fact, I would argue there's probably millions of people who are in quote-unquote therapy who are not even doing therapy. They're sharing their weekly news, they're chit-chatting, they're venting their stress and complaints. In my view, therapy should be work. It's good work. It's important and often life-changing work, but it's work nonetheless. And if therapy isn't challenging and at times painful, then... It's not therapy. And as therapists, we often have to remind our patients, clients of this and gently confront them in the moment with patience and compassion, of course, when they are avoiding the work of therapy. Mm-hmm. 
I remember a lecture we had, I think it was in my second year of med school. And the professor got up front and he said, I'm going to talk to you about the most important thing that doctors do. What do you think that is? And people in the front three rows, that's where I sat. I think we threw out some ideas. And he listened, listened, listened. And he said, no, the most important thing that doctors do by far is write notes. And you could hear this like collective groan in the lecture hall. And he said, no, no, no. This is the most important thing we do because this is where we crystallize the problem. We look at the differential diagnosis. We bring in all the biopsychosocial elements. We come up with a diagnosis and then a plan. And he said, I want you to think about that in your medical education, that the medical note is the most important thing you'll do. And at first, I remember thinking, that is just ridiculous. And uh, in those days, we had to write in notes by hand. And my handwriting is barely legible. I write like a second grader had a stroke. And um, I thought, nobody can even read my notes. And But they did. And residents and attendings would pull me aside and like, what do you mean by this? And is this, is this your best assessment of what the patient, what's going on with him or her? And then I started to realize, probably not until residency fully, that oh, this is why we learn to write in high school, why we learn the five-paragraph essay. This is why we write term papers. This is why we ask patients to journal or, or why we might journal. And that is that until we write, until we put something down on paper, we really have no idea what we think. You know, our mind is just a swirling maelstrom of you know, half-formed hypotheses and cockamamie ideas. But it's only when you put something down and you read it and you work through it that you start to say, ah. And you know, I find that now, you know, most of the time after an eval, I'd say 85% of the time, I think, okay, I know what's going on. And I type out my eval and my assessment is easy and the plan, no problem. But you know, there's 10 or 15% of the time where people walk out and I think, man, I do not know what is going on with this person. And I usually don't figure it out until I write the assessment. You know, I'm writing... 45-year-old single white female presenting with a complex mix of mood instability and progesterone sensitivity and two episodes of postpartum psychosis and a distant hist history of meth dependence and possible childhood neglect and on and on and on and on. And then I look at all that, and as I'm typing it and retyping and rereading it, I realize, oh, this is what's going on. And that never would have happened if I hadn't been forced to really put it down on paper, read it, go over it. And it is really about the most important thing I do because people are paying good money to see me, not just to chat or to hear my silly jokes. They want me to think and they want me to put together all this complicated information. They want me to come up with a reasonable synthesis and understanding and that, and that that will move things forward. And really, again, I... Now, agree with you, a named professor who gave that lecture. It is the most important thing we do. When I was at Brown for residency, in third and fourth year, we learned group therapy, psychodynamic group therapy. It was phenomenal, just fantastic. 
And uh, we'd sit in a circle, and Dr. Vialba, who was our attending, was with us, and usually two residents. And the groups would unfold. And in the first weeks and even months of doing this, I thought, this seems very strange. There's no, there's no leader, there's no topic. But then I started to see over time what was happening. And the way I figured that out was Dr. Vialba said, okay, at the beginning of every group, one of you is going to read the note from the last session, and that's going to make things happen. And sometimes the, no- the notes were very boring. Like you know, a note could have been something like, last week's session, we had seven members. There was 17 minutes of chit-chat about the election. And then uh, Margaret spent most of her time looking out the window with tears rolling down her face. And then Jimmy made a smart aleck comment to her, and so on and on and on. But what happened was, by simply relating back our view of what was happening between the particular dynamics, it was like kerosene on the fire. And I started noticing that over the weeks and weeks that unfolded, the group spent a lot less time on nothingness, if you will, and they actually started doing the work of therapy. It was reading these notes, and again, it was usually the two residents and Dr. Vialba writing these notes, that we would start each group basically by like throwing out this little, I don't know, like a, a little flare, smoke bomb, like, hey, everybody, this was last week. And sometimes the best groups were catalyzed by the most boring notes because I think people heard, like, wow, we spent 90 minutes last week and nothing happened. And sometimes the notes would say that. We'd say, nothing meaningful happened today, and we wonder if anything meaningful will happen the next week. And that's what it took. And that kind of relates back to what I just said a few minutes ago about writing notes. There's something super powerful about a thoughtful note, particularly when it's shared with someone, another physician or therapist, or read out loud to the patient. Another word on medical notes for years now in my solo practice, I often read the note from the prior session. And it's really for the same reason that I saw it back in residency, in that you maintain much more consistency when people hear what was talked about before. It's a chance for me to kind of say the things that maybe I haven't said in the here and now. You know, my note might say something like, uh, a patient came last session and only wanted to talk about her dog. I was um, uh, urging her to talk about her suicide attempt and her refusal to take lithium, but her fear and avoidance catalyzed. Da, 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 da. And so reading these notes out loud is a way that you kind of gently prod patients to, to say, Hey, I'm listening, I'm watching, and Say whatever you want this session. Just know that I'm taking notes on this and you're going to hear next session what I think about this session. And another thing I do with notes that can be really fun is I've seen some of my patients for 15 or 16 years and sometimes we're just in a really celebratory mood and I'll say, gosh, you have come so far and let's read how you were when, when you first came. And I'll pull out my note and I'll read, you know, the first two or three paragraphs from how things were back 
when they met me and just the horrors of their psychiatric abyss. And that can be such a beautiful thing to see how far they've come. And they often are just so shocked and often get teary and grateful to, you know, to hear me quote their words of years ago about what a dark place they were in and how far they've come. I would argue that the most hidden and missed psychiatric illness is surely OCD. Now, I think of OCD like a roller coaster. The O is the obsessionality. It's this rising anxiety, up, up, up. And then comes the compulsive plunge, which relieves the anxiety. But then as it goes rocketing down, it just goes shooting up the next hill for the next wave of obsessional anxiety. And I think I discussed some of that in the OCD episodes in, in season one. But, but here's the thing. If you start looking harder for OCD, you're going to find it. Because I guarantee a significant percentage of people in my practice and your practice, people you know, listeners, have OCD. And, and here's how they're describing it. I have anxiety all the time. I'm always stressed. I'm, And if you got them to be really honest with you, they, they might say something like, I'm going crazy, I'm losing my mind, I'm worried, that, I'm worried I'm some kind of psychopath. And that's because not only is OCD the most missed psychiatric illness, but the types of OCD that are most often missed are what we call the pure obsessional type. And that's where people have intrusive obsessions and images of violent things like pushing people in front of trains or or um, losing control with a knife and stabbing their relative, or they have intrusive thoughts of harming themselves, like throwing themselves off a building or sticking their finger in a socket, or they have perverse sexual images, sacrilegious images. And the thing about OCD, these cause great horror, because if you had bona fide homicidality or suicidality or or, sacrilegious rage, it wouldn't make you upset. It would be energizing. You would think, I want to hurt this person because I'm so angry. I want to hurt myself because I'm in so much pain. But with obsessional OCD, the more awful the imagery gets, the more pain people have. And they feel like they're they're losing their mind. And similarly, uh, with scrupulosity OCD, and that's this idea that people obsess constantly that they've done or said something that hurt someone's feelings, that made someone feel badly, that they did something unethical or immoral. The more they stress about that, it just becomes this overwhelming 24-7 panic. And they can seek reassurance from their friends or family members, but really what can they do? They can't do anything. They're just so bathed in this. And how do you get at these? I mean, you can ask people about OCD symptoms, but I've realized the hard way that if you're really going to pick up OCD in an evaluation, you have to give people the Yale-Brown uh, OCD scale, the Y-Box, Yale-Brown Obsessive Compulsive Scale, because it lists all the common obsessions and compulsions, and there are so many. Because if you just screen people with you know, contamination, OCD questions, or hoarding, or checking, or tapping, you're going to miss a lot of OCD, and you're going to miss these particularly painful types, the scrupulosity type and the pure obsessional type. And here's the thing, simply by naming OCD, simply by helping people understand that these awful thoughts in their head don't mean they're a psychopath or 
sociopath or that they're going crazy. That is such a relief. It's such a relief to put a name to something. It's kind of like if you go in the hospital and you're having crushing chest pain and you're convinced you're going to have a heart attack and the ER doc says, no, this is GERD. This is reflux. This is heartburn. And it's very painful and uncomfortable, but it's not a heart attack. Just by getting that, that's such a relief. And I think that's what we can do with our patients with OCD, even before they get into treatment, the whole treatment path of exposure and response prevention, we can help them feel better that they aren't going crazy. What are the most underused meds in psychiatry? On season one, I talked about my desert island meds. This is different. So these are the most underused medicines. I would say they are, number one, propranolol. Number two, clozapine. Let's talk about propranolol. So propranolol is a blood pressure medicine because it blocks adrenaline, lowers your blood pressure a little bit. But in psychiatry, it does this very cool thing. It blocks adrenaline throughout your body. And if you remember the episode on anxiety that I did in season one, how to think about anxiety, I broke anxiety down into above the neck and below the neck. And below the neck anxiety is adrenaline. And a very powerful way to block that is with propranolol. Propranolol, super safe, essentially doesn't have side effects for most people, lowers your blood pressure a little bit, but you can adjust the dose. But effectively what it does is this. Now imagine, here's the normal anxiety cycle. You're in an anxious situation you have an, or you have an anxious thought. Your body starts to flood with adrenaline. And I think of that as the smoke alarm of your body. So you start to flood with adrenaline. Your chest is tight. You're starting at palpitations. You're starting to sweat. It's like beep, your smoke alarm of you. Now your brain's saying, danger, danger, danger. Something's really wrong. And so then you start to spin, 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 worry. And then you pump out more, uh, not propranolol, that'd be nice. You pump out more adrenaline. So your smoke alarm goes even louder and louder and louder. And your thoughts go more and more out of control. And eventually you have a panic attack. But what if you're in a situation where your thoughts start spinning out of control, but the adrenaline, the below the neck anxiety response is not happening? That's what propranolol does. It's super cool. Uh, I love public speaking, but I remember years ago, I gave a very big talk in Denver and I thought, man, I, I think I could use just a little touch of propranolol. And so I got on the stage, looked, there were hundreds of people in attendance and I thought, this is the biggest group of people I've ever talked to. And I checked my pulse and it was 68 and I thought, I can do this. This is good. And it was amazing because in my mind, I was really kind of scared, but my body was so calm that... I got that feedback system, basically the smoke alarm was off, and so I did it, and it went really well. Let's say a little bit about clozapine. Clozapine is, without a doubt, the most effective antipsychotic there is by far. What a lot of people don't know, it is the most effective mood stabilizer that there is. So many people know that for schizophrenia, nothing else is as good as clozapine for most patients. But it turns out for treatment-resistant bipolar disorder, clozapine is a total game changer and such that you know my practice and i've heard this from a lot of other psychiatrists that once people stabilize in clozapine they essentially never get hospitalized get suicidal get psychotic get manic it's so stabilizing i mean it really is an amazing med but because 
you have to do frequent blood draws because it has some pretty significant possible side effects. Sadly, a lot of psychiatrists in the country don't even prescribe it, which to me is just a tragedy and really not justified given how powerful of a medicine it is. So if you know people that have psychosis or treatment-resistant bipolar disorder and they haven't been on clozapine, they have not been on the best medication there is. So one other word on propranolol. You know, a lot of people like, quote-unquote, like taking benzos more for anxiety because it's like vodka. You know, it's definitely a more, it's a more sort of soothing, pleasing way to dial your anxiety down, but it has all the problems you know, that alcohol does. And, you know, there's a reason they call benzos booze in a pill in AA and that benzos can cause dependence. They have horrific rebound anxiety. If you're dependent on them and you stop, you can die. Whereas propranolol is a really safe way to help manage your below-the-neck anxiety. And for some reason, it's not that used in psychiatry, so I'm trying to put the word out right now for it. My residency program celebrated family. Both the, the residents and our families and all the children we were having, but they also, the attendings were really, really big advocates of having family be involved in treatment. And you know, the word I got in residency was, you know, if you don't have family members involved in treatment, at least one, you're going to miss some really important information. And I have to say, you know, as I look back over the last 20 years, I would say some of my most botched, painful treatment outcomes, they came from not getting family involved. And it was usually because the the patient begged or pleaded or even lied to keep the family out of treatment. And I gave in. But let me tell you, I've learned the hard way. When family's not involved, treatment often goes very badly. Because the thing is, it can take years many years to find out what you could have learned in one session. I had a colleague at a hospital where I used to work, and he said, I love this, he said, family collateral information is the imaging of psychiatry. And I just love that because, yeah, we don't, sure, we order some scans occasionally, but really, if we want to get deep inside the patient and understand them, we should talk to mom, we should talk to wife, we should talk to brother, we should talk to girlfriend. And, you know, recognizing that that's just going to be one person's view. It's not necessarily the full truth, but it's part of the truth. And what we're trying to do is piece together the patient's truth, the truth that we're picking up through countertransference and our clinical experience, and then what the family says. And I also would say this, if the patient strongly resists having family involved, that is a bad sign. That's something you should pay very close attention to. The way I run my practice is, you know, if someone just has a little panic or ADD, yeah, I don't have to have mom or boyfriend or wife involved. But if it's anything serious, if it's any kind of serious mood disorder, addiction, um, psychotic illness, they have to have at least one family member involved or I will not treat them. And I feel so strongly about this that, and I warn people at my evaluations, you know, people sit down, it looks like it's going to be, you know, a significant thing we're treating. I'll say, you know, at the end of the session, I would like to call, fill in the blank, your wife, your mom, your dad, on speakerphone, and I won't share anything that we've talked about, but the way I work is I have to have family involvement. 
And some people balk at that, and I've had a small number of people completely refuse, and I say, oh, I'm just sorry, you know, we, we can just end the eval now, but I can't give you the care you need, I tell them, unless I have at least one other person who can be part of our treatment team and can help me understand you. Because here's the thing, the more psychiatrically ill you are, the more you have disturbed insight and disturbed judgment, and the less likely you are that you're going to make good decisions for yourself. So my sickest patients, they have to have family involved because that's the early warning system. This is the, they're the family members who are going to call me when things are going badly. It's, it's not my patient. And I promise you, you will never regret getting family collateral. Even if you have a family member just come in and sit on the couch and say nothing blankly, that gives a ton of information. I have never had a family member come when I didn't think that it was really helpful. As listeners to this podcast know, I'm totally fascinated with how we heal and why and what that process looks like. And I still find it fairly mysterious, definitely not predictable. But I do think there are some important elements that always come to the surface. And one of those is correct diagnosis, or I think in psychiatry, formulation is more important. And formulation is is where you put together the biopsychosocial picture and the you know genetic factors and you try to come up with sort of a 50-word story of what's happening with the person. But if you don't have an accurate diagnosis or a, or a well-thought-out formulation, you know, it's going to be really hard you know, to foster any kind of healing. But the thing is, it can take a long time to find your people. You know, I, I have heard people say they had to see 10 therapists or five psychiatrists or go to six rehabs until they finally found a person or people who could see them, who could come up with a formulation that would work. So be patient, all of you who are still looking. For sure, healing has to involve healthy sleep. And as you've heard me discuss on other episodes, you know, if you're not sleeping at night, you can't be healthy because we are diurnal daytime mammals and all of our hormone cycles are tied to light and dark. And everyone who's struggling psychiatrically seems to have sleep issues. And as they're getting healthier, they're sleeping at night, they're getting up in the morning. And along with sleep, you know, I find that as people are healing, if they're doing any substances, they're doing them very moderately and mindfully. They're working. It might not be paid work, but they're busy, they're engaged, they have structure, they're opening up, they're vulnerable and open with at least one or two people on this planet. Because psychiatrically healthy people, they live like dogs, they go outside, they play, they move their bodies with pleasure, they seek connection. Maybe they don't sniff butts, that's true. But many of my patients come to me stuck in the role of an indoor cat. They're napping, they're doing little avoiding their species. And the thing is, we are a social tribal species. We need each other. We need sunlight and movement and purpose.
As therapists, we need to continually monitor when and how we are hurting, lashing out, or ignoring our patients. We need to be vigilant for countertransference, hatred, and sadism. Now, if you think you aren't sometimes hurting your clients or patients, you aren't paying attention. I've noticed that I can fall into ignoring texts or emails or phone calls if I'm harboring anger or frustration or resentment towards a patient. Yet I can be a master at coming up with rationalizations about why I'm not responding in a timely way. Another example of my countertransference leaking out was in a recent email from a listener about a disparaging remark I made in the ECT episode where I was using a metaphor to describe geriatric brains, but I think it was not fully accurate and it was a little unkind. I wrote her back and admitted that my comment was unfair, and I thanked her for pointing it out. The thing is, I don't see young kids or elderly in my practice, and it's because I find both groups just too emotionally draining. Yet here I was with my Freudian slip, which revealed my history of despair and sense of failure when working with an older subset of patients. When we say or do things that are out of character for us, we need to ask ourselves why. What was triggered in me? Our patients will highlight our deepest fears, our insecurities and failings. We have to hold the mirror up and be ready to look inward over and over and over throughout our careers. The healer can harm and does harm. But this then gives us the opportunity to heal the relationship, to address the empathic failure. And healing empathic failures is one of the main mechanisms by which therapy fosters change. For so many clinicians, including me, discussing borderline personality disorder with a patient can be really tricky because... The fact is, the word borderline has become so pejorative, and it's so ambiguous, and it's used in just such a negative way in so many contexts. It can be hard to bring up, but the thing is, it is really real, and it ruins people's lives. And we as therapists, we have to talk about it. So one thing I've started doing of late is, you know, I'll uh, ask people about the criteria, I'll weave those in, the borderline criteria, weave those into our therapy. And then I will say to them, you know, it turns out that what, what you struggle with, this has a name. And you may have guessed it. It's called borderline personality disorder. But I don't really use that name much because I don't, I don't think it means much. You know, originally it meant the borderline between neurosis and psychosis. And I suggest to my patients that we, that we talk about their BPD as disordered attachment. And you know what, when you talk about disordered attachment, you can just see the palpable relief as people think about that. And it doesn't feel so negative, and it feels like something they can own and want to work on. And I'll describe that this disordered attachment, it worsens under stress, that it actually has a good prognosis, that it has very common dysfunctional features like black-white thinking, idealization, demonization, dysphoria leading to self-harm, all things that we can work on together. And that, again, relating back to that idea that Dr. Shedler brought up in the Aspen seminar, I remind them that we are going to surely have some major falling outs. They're going to feel hurt by me, abandoned by me, um, attacked by me. 
And so it's really important that we frequently check in and see if there are things I'm doing or saying or not doing or not saying that are hurtful. And that works really well because I think everybody wants to have better attachment. I think, well, I would argue everybody who's coming to us because that's really what psychotherapy is. It's, it's practicing attachment in the here and now. One of the big problems with American medicine is we have all these specialties and they all get, as we say, sort of siloed off like a, like a grain silo. And each specialty has its own meds and diagnoses and ideas and biases. And it turns out one of the many, many problems with that is that there are lots of illnesses and problems that cross disciplines, that cross, that, that cross specialties. And one of those is endocrinology, specifically sex hormones. It's interesting when you talk to psychiatrists, very few psychiatrists do hormone replacement therapy. They might refer for it, or maybe they prescribe a little testosterone, but most of them just think of that as the purview of the PCP or the gynecologist. But here's the thing, for many people, particularly women, if they have estrogen or progesterone issues, and definitely during perimenopause and menopause, psychiatric treatment often does not work unless you get their hormones straight. But a lot of PCPs and gynecologists don't seem to fully understand the psychiatric imperative of HRT. And so I used to spend a lot of time on the phone with PCPs and gynecologists trying to get them to do HRT. And these days, I'm just doing a lot of it myself. And I've uh, done some training and seminars and talked to a lot of people. And I'm realizing that we psychiatrists, we need to get on board with HRT because if we just keep throwing antidepressants at people uh, or even ketamine, that uh, it's not going to work. If you're in perimenopause or menopause and failing multiple meds, it's probably because you need HRT. So I urge all of you who work in mental health, read up on HRT, read up on testosterone, understand how and when hormones might help our patients. I give all my patients my cell phone. Now, when I tell this to some of my psychiatrist colleagues, they look at me in horror. But I think there's a good reason, at least for me in my solo private practice, because number one, people feel much more connected to me. A lot of people that I see are very lonely or very isolated. You know, their mental illness has caused them uh, to be very you know, sheared off from the rest of the society. And it's a very concrete thing that I can give them at the first session. Secondly, it serves as a great early warning system because you know a lot of times with mania, psychosis, or suicidal thinking, there's only minutes or hours between the patient thinking hmm, things are not going well to things going terribly. So there's been hundreds of times over the years that I could stave off bad outcomes because people reached out to me by text. You know, it's a concrete marker that I care. I think we can tell our patients, oh, I care about you. But when you say, this is my cell phone and you can reach out to me if you're in trouble, that's very concrete. And people really appreciate that. Another way that texting has been really helpful is I learned that I can get a lot of good treatment response info. So, for example, with ketamine, when I started doing ketamine four years ago, I told people, hey, text me on day one, two, and three. And just by doing that, 
I've come to re- to deeply understand how the ketamine response happens over 72 hours because you know, normally you ask people when they come to session, oh, when did you start feeling better? Or, how are you a couple days after ketamine? I mean, nobody can remember that. I mean, you could ask people to journal, but I haven't had a lot of success doing that. So there's something really powerful about gathering your own data, whether it's with a new medication and trying to figure out when people respond or uh, once people get on CPAP. I have sometimes people text me at 5, 10, 15 days after CPAP, so I get a sense of how their sleep quality and daytime sleepiness is is changing. So I would encourage those of you out there, you can do this, you can give yourself, you just have to have good limits. And I work a lot on limits with my people, but I have to say most of my people are really respectful of my cell phone. Imagine a migraine clinic. And imagine that this clinic receives patients with intractable migraines and how they treat them is this. They say, we want you to come six times over the next couple of weeks and we're going to give you slowly increasing doses of ibuprofen. We're going to start you at say half of a 200 milligram tab. And then each session that you come back, will give you a little bit more. By the fourth or fifth treatment, we'll get you up to like four or 600 milligrams of ibuprofen. Now, This would seem pretty cruel and pointless, but definitely profitable. Yet, I would argue this is how much of the world of ketamine works. It's like most people who are using ketamine are not thinking about dose response. They're starting people, 0.5 mg per kg, which is, I would argue, sort of like half of an ibuprofen. I mean, it's somewhat helpful, but it's not a real dose. Why aren't we starting people on ketamine on doses that work quickly? And that would be the fully dissociative doses, like... 0.8 0.8 or 0.9 mg per kg, or at the very least, start people at 0.7. But here's the thing, you know, in medicine, like the rest of society, we get these ideas like, oh, we need eight glasses of water a day, or, you know, beta carotene is good for your heart. But then when we study these things, or like fish oil, everybody thought fish oil was so great, but now it's studied when we see, hmm, it doesn't really seem to do anything for mood. Dose matters, and it matters with ketamine. If you dose ketamine properly, you can make a really meaningful difference for people within two to three treatments. I think part of the thing is a lot of clinics seem to shy away from patients having difficult experiences. But I and many other docs and therapists are finding that psychologically difficult sessions can be extremely therapeutic. And just recently, I've been trying out this cool new protocol that a clinic in Denver does. They've been doing slow drip. So instead of 35, 40 minutes, they're doing like 55, 60 minutes. And then they go up about 30% above the dissociative threshold. That way, people spend a lot longer time in the K-hole full dissociation. And they're getting about 30% more ketamine overall. And for some of my patients, that seems to buy them weeks more of euthymia and feeling good. So that's a really exciting new development. Back in 2006, Sally Sattel, who's a psychiatrist and writer, she wrote an essay in the New York Times about addiction, and I link to it in the show notes. Basically, what she argues in her essay is that we often spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out why people are addicted, 
why did people go to meth? Why did people go to crack? Why did they start drinking? And she argues, and I agree with her, that this can largely be a big waste of time. The most important thing is to quit using, to clean out the system and get your brain thinking right, and then, then do meaningful therapy. Yet I think so often it's the opposite. We see people doing therapy to try to figure out why do I use, and they're thinking they're, thinking they're going to come up with some insider understanding that's going to get them to quit, but that's not the way it works. You know, even AA realizes that. First you quit, and then you work the steps. We have to be careful, really careful, that psychotherapy does not become an avoidance strategy for taking action and quitting drugs. Well, the last two years have been hard with COVID, and I think for therapists it's been a difficult time. Now, I'm very grateful that I've been able to keep practicing and I've done a lot of video sessions, but I have to say... This video thing, oh, I hate it. And I've mentioned this before in this podcast, but I, and I know not all therapists feel this way. One of my best friends is a therapist. He loves videos, but video session. But I, I feel this soul sucking when I do video. You know, normally when I meet with a patient, even if it's a really great set, or even if it's a very difficult session, I'll have this warm, connected feeling in my chest. I just, I feel really deeply connected to the person. I'm looking forward to seeing them again. I mean, I really feel that the energy of human connection. But you know, with video calls, it kind of reminds me of those strangely colored cubes that they used to eat on the old Star Trek. You know, I think both those old cubes and video sessions, I mean, they both theoretically supply the basic needs of the situation, but without any of the joy or richness or satisfaction. Now, I found during the pandemic, I had 75, 80, 82-year-olds who were wanting to come see me in person in the heart of COVID in 2020. I said, you can't come see me. And they were so lonely. They were so desperate. They said, I would rather take the risk of getting COVID and see you in person because I just need to sit with somebody. And that really spoke to me of not, not just the need for connection, but that this idea that you know, we can substitute a you know, flickering image on a screen, that that can be connection. I mean, I think like those colored cubes on Star Trek, it, it keeps you alive, but it's not, not good. And the other thing as a psychiatrist, and this is probably more true for me than, than general therapists, but I realized painfully that all these video calls, I've been missing a lot of stuff. Because when I only see someone's face, I can't weigh them. I can't do a urine drug screen. I can't see their hands. I can't, I don't watch them walk into the office. So the effect of that is, you know, among the things I've missed by being on Zoom, I've missed, let's see, multiple relapses to alcohol and to meth and opioids and benzodiazepines, one person with a 60-pound weight gain, another with an 80-pound weight gain. I missed a depression that was so severe the person stopped bathing. And since we were on Zoom, I couldn't smell them. Uh, relapses to cutting, new-onset tremors. I missed medication-induced Parkinsonism, new-onset gait disturbances, and multiple cases of worsening of agoraphobia. You know, again, grateful that Zoom exists, but I would put it out there, to, especially to my psychiatrist colleagues, that if you think you're giving good care on a video screen, I think you are not. I think you're giving bare minimum, better-than-nothing care. 
this field can crush people. It can crush people physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We all need to figure out what kind of suffering we can handle, what kinds of patients we can help, who we need to screen out, who we need to refer. For me, geriatric patients, young kids, people who are big excuse makers and finger-pointing blamers, these are the people I realized I need to refer on. Because here's the thing, if you don't refer the people who suck your soul, you're going to be sucked dry. And then who can you help? We all have to focus intensely on the people that we can connect with and, and that we're most able to heal. And another critical thing to remember, psychiatric illness is sometimes fatal, no matter what I or the patient or you or the family does. And if we work with sick people, we're going to lose some of them. And some of the most ill people might live while seemingly less ill patients, they die. After 20 years and tens of thousands of hours sitting with my patients, I've come to realize that people are basically good, no matter what their political beliefs, no matter how different they are from me, this work has given me hope for humanity. In my practice, I see Jews and Mormons and Muslims and atheists and social justice warriors and Trumpers and gun-obsessed men and old hippies and anarchist vegans and conspiracy theorists and liberal soccer moms. And the overwhelming majority of them are kind, compassionate, decent, lovely people. I think our negative views of others can emanate from the power of true belief, of tribe, to pull people out of their evolutionary-wired tendency towards being compassionate towards others. Life on Earth has been brutally hard for our species. Evolution surely is selected for humans who help each other, who are pro-social, who care about others. And that's what I see every day in my practice. Yeah.